integrity uh, within leadership, honesty, a kind of mor- morality of leaders. It, it's quite a contemporary talking point, isn't it? There are ethical and moral expectations, standards that we expect of our leaders. These standards ought to be the benchmark, if you like, for the rest of us to live up to, to aspire toward. Remember how the nation reacted when there was the MP uh, expenses scandal. A a little while ago, it was unveiled, wasn't it? And, And some MPs lost their jobs, and rightly so, because of that. We, we expect a certain standard, an integrity of a person when they're in a position of authority. As a nation, we found that kind of skimming of public funds uh, a little bit of a step too far. But it is interesting, isn't it? That, that you know, we, we're, we're not willing to overlook that, but we're willing to overlook a number of other kind of moral things that happen. Ethical standards are dropped in some areas. And therefore, these days, for example, there are a few morality clauses in your contracts as leaders in your businesses. It's interesting, that, isn't it? You roll back 40 years, you would have all had them. Uh, if someone just gets the job done now, if they maximise profit, that seems all that is necessary. It seems that whatever someone gets up to in their own private lives, if it's legal and it doesn't harm the reputation of the company, the firm that you work for, well, that's kind of okay now. I'm not sure how many of you will actually notice it on the TV at the moment. Uh, there's been lots of talk of the Super Bowl. I know it's an odd sport, but let's just work with that for a moment. Um, you know, it's Super Bowl Sunday next Sunday. It is, Neil, isn't it? Yeah, because you're one of those weird people that stays up all night, I know. But there we go. That's, this is American football, not proper football that we're talking about, just, just to help you there. But it is the second biggest sporting event in the world after the World Cup, sorry, Stu, uh, after the World Cup um, of proper football, um, which you call soccer, some of you. Uh, but did you know that actually still today, NFL players, American football players, they still have in their contracts morality clauses, as do many of American sports people. That is, they're seen to have a, a responsibility. They are in positions of leadership, of authority within the country. Uh, they, they have to have an integrity in their lives, whether on the pitch or off the pitch. Uh, and they're to conduct themselves in a certain manner. And they have a high standard of which they have to live by. And it's a high standard, it's interesting, isn't it? It's a high standard that seems to have been slightly ignored in a much more influential position in that great country. But this is exactly what Paul is writing to defend uh, in himself in this section of this letter to Corinthians. It seems ridiculous though, doesn't it? We're speaking of Paul here. He's an apostle of God. He's the one who's gone to Corinth, uh, risking so much, sacrificing so much, uh, in great love, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and uh, establishing a church there. He's done so much and he's having to defend his integrity as a leader and an apostle. But that is exactly what he's having to do in this section here. And it's interesting, he's not alone, you know, to having to defend his integrity in ministry as a leader. Uh, Leadership in in a church is a precarious position. People can be incredibly tough, judgmental, and often very graceless. High standards, of course, should be upheld within positions in a church. But often leaders, and I know very many, who find themselves utterly bemused by biting criticism. 
Now, I'm thankful that that is not true here, but I know many of my peers who are in the brink of breakdown because of harsh comments that they receive on not just a kind of oh, monthly basis, but on a daily, repetitive basis. And Paul is feeling that pressure. Uh, it's extraordinary, but that is the reality of his life at the moment. He feels that precariousness in his standing in the church in Corinth, the church he loves and established and cares for in so many ways. It's, it's the strange thing, though, about his, uh, the question of his integrity here is the reason for it. I don't know if you picked it up as we went through the reading. I think primarily, it seems, his integrity has been questioned because of his changing travel plans. Now, it seems strange, but Paul's established a church. He's written to the church. Uh, his first letter, we've got that 1 Corinthians in the Bible here. And he planned to visit them again. If you look at 1 Corinthians 16, verse 5 and 6, you'll see he plans to visit them over the winter, a longer visit. But Paul had received a report back from the church. And he'd heard of great division within the church. And so he changes his travel plans. And he visits them more briefly... Uh, but earlier than he'd uh, anticipated and planned to do so. Now, it may seem ridiculous to our ears, but these changes in his travel plans caused the church in Corinth to question the integrity of him as a man and also as an apostle of God. Because they thought, you see, his changing of mind, his kind of vacillating, his kind of flip-flopping between, oh, I had this plan and I'm now going to have this plan. They thought that changing nature of his mind wasn't in line with the unchanging nature of God who he proclaimed. And they accuse him of being double-minded. There's also maybe a hint of kind of distrust here as well, because he was on his way to Macedonia, he was coming back from Macedonia, and he was taking money from Corinth to there, and they thought, look, is he trying to line his pockets with his kind of quick... Quick um, change of travel plans. See, they consider Paul deceptive, double speaking, saying one thing and doing the other, deficient in character. And that is pretty rough, isn't it? Given what we know of Paul and his relationship with the church in Corinth. Sacrificing so much, risking so much to teach them the good news about Jesus Christ, establishing the church and his continued care This is pretty hard on him, isn't it? Well, that is the broad picture of what we're going to be looking at now. What we have in front of us is Paul's defence of himself and his ministry. Paul's integrity is being questioned. Now, at this stage, you might be thinking, well, that applies very little to me. Uh, You know, as you examine the integrity of Paul, I want to encourage you to look at yourself a little bit. It's not a direct application, but look at yourself a little bit and and think, particularly, you know, many of you are in positions of leadership, in work, and and probably in the church as well, in some degree. What do you aspire toward as a leader? What do you look for in leadership, Uh, particularly in the church? What are the criteria in your mind that you use to make judgments about, oh, that's a great leader. Oh, that's not such a good leader. So that's what's happening here. Paul is defending his integrity as a leader and as an apostle of God. Let's look at his defence. It is an absolute masterpiece, it has to be said. I've put uh, a few things in the outline, therefore. uh, But the main big picture is we're looking at the integrity of Paul. 
Um, let me just run through, if you like, the logic of it to begin with, and then we'll dive into each little section uh, briefly as we go. And you'll notice, just look down at verse 12, you'll see the introduction, verse 12 to 14. It's kind of framed with this odd use of the word boast. Uh, we'll see what he boasts of in a moment. But the flow of the argument goes like this. Look at your outline. You see, Paul begins internally. That is, he demonstrates that true integrity as a leader is experienced internally with, as someone who has a clear conscience. Someone who has a clear conscience. Secondly, then, we see that Paul shows that integrity and leadership is shown more clearly to others externally in the way that we speak truthfully. Thirdly, he demonstrates where integrity is founded, that is, it's founded in Christ. And that is the centre point of his argument, really. And also the mutuality of their unity with Christ, uh, the people he's writing to. Lastly, it is worked out. Worked out practically, particularly in the life of Paul and his ministry here, in wounded love. We'll come to that at the end. That's the logic. Let's have a look and let's dive in at those first few verses. Verses 12 to 14. Let's look at the integrity of Paul as experienced in a clear conscience. Let me read those couple of verses again. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. That's the severe letter he's speaking of. He's written... And I hope that, as you have understood it in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you, in the day of the Lord Jesus. <coughs> so let's look at it. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? These verses, these introductory verses, are framed with this unusual use of the word boast. Paul boasts in verse 12 that he has conducted himself with integrity and sincerity. He's changed his travel plans, as I've explained, uh, but for good reason. That is, in love for this church, he has changed his travel plans. He wasn't a vacillating man, kind of flip-flopping between ideas and saying, oh, doing it for his pleasure and for his own purposes. No, he was doing this in love. He was changing plans in love for the people. And in verse 13, he defends what he's written. Again, he writes with a simplicity and in love. So the church can understand the message, the hard message, but the message that he writes to them. But why does he boast of these things? Because it does seem rather out of character, doesn't it? Remember in Corinth, uh, there were teachers in the church who were selling themselves very much. They were impressive to look at and they were impressive as they spoke as well. They were professionals in that manner. As a result, they were kind of high-caliber boasters. They would continually tweet about how intelligent they were. They were, you know, they would mention to all the media about, you know, how good their speeches were and how many people turned up at their inaugurations. Sorry, I couldn't go with that one. They boasted. They boasted. Paul boasts. But he boasts in order to get their attention. It would be such a surprise to them to hear a boast from him. But instead of boasting in arrogance, look, he boasts showing his humility before God. He doesn't rely, as he says, on worldly wisdom, but rather on God's grace. Paul received such terrible slander from this church. 
kind of character assassination. But his defence is to speak of God's grace working in and through his life. And they've been the recipients of that. He therefore boasts with a clear conscience. His conscience is clear before the Corinthians because he's written with simplicity. He hasn't tried to kind of, you know, kind of show off in any way that he's written or anything like that to show how great he is. He just wants them to understand, to repent and to turn. He's acting in a godly and upright way. Sincerity and integrity were the hallmarks of his ministry. And all by the grace of God. He's not boasting of himself here but the work of God in and through him. That is what he boasts of. But you have to ask, why is, why is a clear conscience so important to Paul? Why is he sort of banging on about it the whole time? In all of his letters, wherever you turn, he speaks of a clear conscience again and again and again. In a sense, many would argue that it's the foundation, if you like, of his leadership and what he expects of any leaders within any church which he establishes. It's so important to him. For example, 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. You can look at these later, write them down now. He urges leaders to love, but look where that love is to come from. The goal of, uh, of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience. 1 Timothy 3 verse 9. Leaders to keep hold of God's truth. The deep truths of the faith, which he describes there, with a clear conscience. Again and again, wherever you look in Paul's writings, when he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin in Acts 23, uh, he speaks with a clear conscience. When he's speaking in front of Felix, the the governor in, in Acts 24, with a clear conscience. Clear conscience everywhere as a leader. It's everything to Paul in his ministry. And it's a slap in the face to these leaders in Corinth who would boast of themselves in arrogance. Paul boasts in humility. He served the Corinthians with sincerity of love, and he has nothing, nothing to hide. He stands there and speaks with a clear conscience. And his only boast is of the grace of God in and working in and through him. But it's interesting, he expects uh, to end those verses, verse 14, he expects the Corinthians to boast of him as well. Do you see that? The letter he speaks about in verse 13 is that severe letter which he's written to them. In a sense, what he's asking here is that a double boasting ought to go on. Paul boasts of his clear conscience, but he expects them to boast of the grace of God that will work in and through them, through that severe letter, as they turn and as they repent. So Paul defends, you see, himself and his ministry, boasting, boasting of God's grace and work in his life. We mustn't underestimate how important this is within the church, within leaders within the church. Whether you're leading in a Sunday school, a small group, wherever it is, we must have leaders who lead with integrity, who can stand with the joy and the lightness of a clear conscience. They've got nothing to hide. Now, it doesn't mean perfection, but it means leaders that that don't have to, a double standard life. On the pitch and off the pitch, there's a difference. No. And that is exactly what we see in Paul. The integrity of Paul experienced in a clear conscience. And it's evident, secondly, in truthful speech. So let's look at verse 15 through to 17. We'll see now the outworking in his speech now. Let me read those verses. Because I was confident of this, that is the effect his letter had had on the church in Corinth. I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia. 
and then let you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this, or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, both yes, yes, and no, no? Now the answer to the, there's two questions there in verse 17, do you spot that? It's a double no, that's the answer. Paul is saying, yes, he wanted to visit, but he had changed his plans for no other reason than that he loves them. He wants to come and bless the church. And his defence is really simple, isn't it? He, he says he's not double-minded, right? He's going to give him a double grace, double blessing in two visits. Now remember, his integrity as a leader is being questioned because of his changing mind. But note that he's motivated in love. This doesn't undermine his integrity, rather it should bolster his integrity, really. Paul wasn't forgetting his word. He wasn't forgetting his commitment to the church and what he had said in any way. He simply wants to give them more. Many parents will know if you're, if you're a parent here, it's very important to honour your word and your commitments that you make to your children. Last summer, I promised to take the boys on a bike ride and uh, we were going to end up in our favourite ice cream shop in France. It's a great place. We went on this bike ride and uh, it was a very hot day and I was, we, we came back, we got back to the ice cream shop and I was feeling particularly generous that day and I said, you can have whatever you want. And it, you know, they'd gone on a long ride, they were, they were very hungry, so they, they got a crepe. We love crepes. Masses of Nutella on it, brilliant. And they got a massive drink as well. And I thought, as we were riding back to where we were staying, I thought literally I was the best dad in the world at that moment. I'd given them everything. A great afternoon in the sun, recycling, anything you want, they'd chosen everything. Uh, no. Basically, when we got back to uh, where we were staying, I thought I was the best dad in the world, but unfortunately, they hadn't had ice cream. And ice cream had been promised. And I was sort of sad again. Apparently, I became the least trustworthy father and the worst dad in the world for not giving them an ice cream. I offered them everything. They had a crepe and a drink. And yet, they'd remembered by the time we got back and said, no, we didn't have an... You see the point? What Paul's... It's exactly kind of Paul's point here. He's, he isn't changing his travel plans, uh, you know, to just kind of restrict them. He's, he's changing his travel plans to bless them, to give them more. This isn't Paul being fickle or speaking in a worldly manner, as he says, saying one thing and doing something else. This, that kind of speaking, of course, would undermine his integrity as a leader. But Paul, you see, changes his travel plans as an indicator of his integrity as a leader. He wants to double grace them, double love them, double bless them in two visits. And he's willing to speak to them truthfully as he does so. And sometimes it will be in hard words like this severe letter uh, that he speaks of and he alludes to in verse 15. And sometimes it will be as he speaks to them truthfully and shows his love for them, coming to visit more times than he'd originally planned. Paul has what one commentator called a radical truth ethic. He will say what he needs to say. He will do what he needs to do. Therefore, his defence is that his integrity as an apostle was not undermined by his changing plans. Rather, he speaks to them truthfully. He says exactly what they need to hear. And when they need to hear it, saying he will visit twice because you need me to be there twice. And he does that in love. 
And it's what they need, and we need leaders who have the guts to do that. The harder thing sometimes, but to speak in truth and in love. Paul's integrity is evidence in truthful speech. So often people struggle with that, don't they? To speak truthfully in love. Some leaders uh, who I uh, know and, uh, and love dearly, they, they, they struggle to say no to anyone. In their desire to be appreciated, they say yes, yes, yes to everything and everyone, even if they know in reality they can't ever fulfill all of those yeses. It's a very hard thing to do, isn't it, to speak the truth in love. People desperately want to just please and placate everyone. But if you don't speak truthfully, because you know, if you don't speak truthfully, you're going to let people down in the end. You can never get everything that you promised done if you just say yes all the time. Paul is defending his integrity here and it is evidenced in his truthful speech. It's hard, but it's said in love. He's willing to say those difficult things as well as the gentle things and both in love for the church. He has this radical truth ethic. He would tell the truth all the time. I wonder if there are times in our friendships, in our marriages, in our church where we do keep quiet when we know that we need to speak the truth and hear it in love to encourage a friend. Paul had this radical truth ethic. His integrity as an apostle was evidenced by this truth-telling. But the reason for this radical truth-telling is founded in our next point. Uh, because Paul's integrity was founded in Christ. Let's look at those verses again. Verse 18. And we'll read through to verse uh, 20 here. <coughs> but surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. But in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, there are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. See, Jesus is right at the centre of Paul's truth speaking, that radical kind of truth ethic. Jesus, whom Paul proclaimed, was and is the prophetic yes, we kind of call him. That is, in Jesus all the promises of God in the past and future will be found, yes, in Jesus. If you like, well, you might, might put it this way. Jesus is the consummation of all of God's promises. They're all pointing to him and they find their yes in him. Their answer is in him. So because Jesus, if you like, is God's ultimate yes, he's the ground of all kind of Christian ethics, which is why Paul seems so shocked by the accusations of the church in Corinth. Paul, you see, is, he's the one who's faithfully proclaimed Christ. Therefore, his actions and his speech, who he was as a person, in fact, as an apostle, centred around the person that he proclaimed, namely Jesus Christ. To Paul, the accusation of, of him being kind of double-minded and so on, and not speaking true, it's just totally illogical. Which is why he says in verse 20, for, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so, so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. The logic is this, you see. If you preach Christ, the ultimate yes of God's promises, 
And if you say amen to the truth about Christ, that which you've preached, that which Paul has preached, then you, he's also to live out that amen, that's kind of, that so be it. You're declaring that truth to be true in your life. There's an absolute integrity here to Paul. But it is founded in the gospel that he proclaimed and then lives out. There isn't any disconnection between what he says and who he is. It was once said of a, an early church father, Bishop Basil, that's his great name, isn't it? Bishop Basil of Caesarea. Um, it was said of him that his sermons were like thunder because his life was like lightning. His sermons were like thunder because his life was like lightning. That is, there was an absolute integrity to both his speech that was worked out in his life. What Paul is saying is here, as I proclaim Christ and I've lived out the truths of Christ in my life, that there's a seamlessness to that, an absolute integrity. It is illogical for you to say, Corinthians, that I'm not, I don't have an integrity. And we need this today, don't we? We need this today in all of our places in work, our homes, but most importantly in the church. We need men and women who are transparently sincere, whose life and speech is a, if you like, a continual amen, a non-stop agreement with the proclaimed gospel of Christ and the nature of Christ, in whom all the promises of God find their fulfilment, their ultimate yes. I wish I had more time to spend on verse 21 and 22, but note uh, what, what Paul does here in his defence of his own integrity. Um, he, he now includes the Corinthians in his argument. Look at it with me, verse 21, uh, quickly. Now it is God who makes both, both, notice, both us and you stand firm in Christ. Paul, if you like, brings the Corinthians in close and he shows them that they are united, more united than they are divided. That they should be thankful for their unity rather than critical of Paul. And Paul points out their unity is founded in that threefold work of the Spirit. You can see it in the verse 22. He says we've been anointed, we've been sealed and we have a deposit in our hearts. We are together in this. The work of the Spirit in our lives. That they criticise Paul it seems ridiculous to him because Paul has brought them to Christ so that they can know that threefold work of the Spirit in their lives. They should be thanking God for Paul. Not questioning his integrity. Rather praising him for his integrity. Lastly, let's look at the uh, last point there. We've seen the integrity of Paul experienced in a clear conscience, evidence in truthful speech, founded in Christ, now worked out in wounded love. Let's look at verse 23 and 24 to begin with. I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it that... It was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. Notice he changed his travel plans. He says it's a strong word, isn't it? To spare them. See, if you notice, how much better is it to write a truthful but hard, severe letter as he has done than turning up in judgment? At the church saying, that is it. I'm removing myself. No longer under my care. How much more loving to write that truthful, severe letter that calls them to repentance. 
Look at verse 1 of uh, chapter 2. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad? But you whom I have grieved. I wrote as I did, that severe letter, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I have confidence in all of you that you would share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. There's a great mutuality here in these last verses, isn't there? Uh, Mutual suffering. He suffers with them, but he also shares their joy, longs to share their joy with them. He's longing to avoid, in love for the church, that final judgment, that cutting off Uh, removing himself from them and so he writes here with wounded love but that is a great mark of his integrity because note what he could do what would be the easy thing for him as a leader to do right now oh it'd just be to walk away wouldn't it say enough is enough this is scandalous what you're saying of me go that's what he could have done And it would have been the easy option. This church are so ungrateful. They're making poor judgments about who is a leader and who shouldn't be a leader. Paul loves them and he writes to them. And we see the language. Look at anguish of heart with many tears. So why? So they might turn back. They might listen to this severe letter. They might turn back to the truth. And know his integrity as a man and as an apostle of God. You see how much... Paul is like Jesus. You see that? <coughs> 2 Peter 3, 9 says this of Jesus. The Lord was not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see that? The Corinthians had been the source of so much heartache for Paul. But they were his daily concern, as we saw last week. Despite the fact that he was over in Asia, and himself, as we saw chapter 1, verse 8, he's he's actually concerned for his life. He's tasting death. He's going through so much at the moment, but his daily concern is the Corinthian church. He loves them so much. He preached the gospel of Christ to them, and now they're ripping him apart. Doubting him to his very core, but he doesn't respond in anger. He has every right to. And walk away. He responds in wounded love. With many tears. Uh, That depth of love phrase in in verse 4 is literally an overflowing love. It can't stop. What a defense of his integrity this is. He boasts of a clear conscience. He has nothing to hide. Such godly integrity all in God's grace so confident is he of his godly character that he knew he would become their boast on the final day and so he changes his plans in love to speak the gospel of truth to them twice to a double grace a double blessing he embraced Christ in his life and in his speech to the ultimate yes and therefore his yes was yes and his no was no because Christ was the ultimate ground of the truth in his life he was a radical truth teller what integrity what love and what a leader let's pray
Heavenly Father, for those of us who are in positions of leadership within the church, please humble us, I pray. Help us to see the integrity of Paul and to strive, as he called Timothy to, to fight the good fight that we might stand with a clear conscience too. And those of us in positions of leadership elsewhere in the workplace, may we seek to model our leadership on that of Paul's here. May we be radical truth-tellers. May we be able to stand and lead with clear consciences that we might, if you like, proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ in and through our leadership. It's very easy to be distinct in the culture in which we live in this way. Help us to talk about this afterwards. Help us to work out how we can best emulate uh, this type of leadership in our workplaces so that we might have those opportunities to speak of the Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen.